Perfect. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the BSSH Sport and History podcast. I am Connor Heffernan, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Alan McDougall, who is a member of the Department of History at the University of Guelph in Canada. And he has just published a fantastic article in Sport and History called This Heart-Rending and World-Shattering News, Gender, Emotion and Transnationalism in the Bill Shankly Retirement Letters. Um, I should have mentioned this before, but I am now using this podcast cynically to chat to people whose articles have been absolutely fascinating in sport and history, and I haven't told Jeff who runs it. So this is very much self-interest on my part. But on that note, Alan, can I start by just getting you to maybe introduce yourself, your research interests, and then we might start to unpack and dig into this article. Sure, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my name's uh, Alan McDougall. I am a professor of history, as Connor mentioned, at the University of Guelph uh, in Canada. And I am, or well, I've become, I would say, a sports historian in the past decade. Um, my previous work focused on the history of football in communist East Germany, and I published a book on that subject called The People's Game, uh, Football, State and Society in East Germany back in 2014. And I still work a bit on East German football because it's an endlessly fascinating topic. And then in recent years, um, uh, you were talking about self-interest there, Connor, I think in in many self-interested ways as a lifetime Liverpool supporter um, who perhaps wanted to do research nearer to Anfield, I've started to look into the history of my own club, Liverpool Football Club, and that's resulted in an ongoing book project. And part of that is the um, essay that you very kindly introduced today on the letters that were sent to Bill Shankly after he retired very suddenly in 1974. So as someone who is constantly emailing old bodybuilders and powerlifters and begging them for material, how did you get access to this? Because I think it's about 200 letters you mentioned in the article written to Bill Shankly in 1974. How did you get access to those letters? Well, very simply, actually. I mean, it's a reminder, I think, in our electronic age, particularly in the last year and a half of COVID, of how important it is to, to have face-to-face contacts. I, uh, there's a new hotel in Liverpool, which was um, built a few years ago and opened for Bill Shankly, in Bill Shankly's name, the Shankly Hotel in central Liverpool, right near Lime Street train station. And on a research trip there four or five years ago, I literally just walked up to the, uh, into the lobby asked all the Shankly memorabilia, walked up to the front desk, and um, instead of asking for a room for a night or two, I, I asked to speak to um, Chris Shankly. Chris is uh, Bill Shankly's uh, grandson, and I knew that he was involved in the hotel. So yeah, it was a bit of a wing and a prayer, really, and um, things rolled from there. So I, I think I met Chris maybe at the hotel in the in the, the, the breakfast room, which is called the Bastion after what Bill Shankly's quote about making Liverpool a bastion of invincibility. So in the bastion the next day, uh, Chris came in with literally, as I said in the essay, a couple of bags, really kind of slightly grotty looking bags of um, letters and cards, which I think had been in his his grandmother's, Nessie, Bill's wife's kind of cupboards for until she died in 2002. And then it kind of sat around in various family cupboards since then. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, this is a really fascinating element of the historian's craft, right? How much serendipity is involved. I've actually got a colleague in my department who's doing um, an essay on serendipity and or doing research on serendipity and historical archives. So this was a very serendipitous moment. And um, yeah, and, and Chris very kindly let me kind of take photos of all the letters and um, just throw myself into 
this world of kind of these rich emotions that came when, when Shankly announced his retirement. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a very moving collection. And, um, and, and, you know, so I felt very lucky to get hold of it. And in contrast to that, you know, I've, you know, I've tried to get in touch with the club itself. And I think like a lot of in sports institutions, they don't necessarily keep archives very well. So whatever the Liverpool Football Club archive consists of, it's not very easily accessible or if it even exists. So to just be able to walk into the hotel, get these two bags of letters was, it was pretty magical to be honest with you. I'm both very happy for you and also very angry at you. <laughs> um, it's a quite, yeah. quite a weird emotion. Uh, I don't know if there's a, there's probably a yeah. German word for it somewhere. Yeah, um, it's, yeah it's, it's like a variant on Schadenfreude, I guess, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, you have this wonderful kind of 200 strong collection of letters uh, and we'll use this to segue maybe into the article itself mm. w- what is the content of those letters like what are you finding who is writing them and and how are they expressing themselves to Bill Shankly well I mean in terms of the exp- I mean the variety of the letters is interesting you know there's kind of um, some pretty naff mid-70s sort of retirement cards um, you know which are just signed by a bunch of people but more interest, I think, and there were lots of these in the collection, is that there are a wide variety of letters. And, and as I kind of indicated in the essay, they, I mean, I wouldn't quite say they're from all walks of life. I mean, they're from people who love football, I think, mostly. But they, most of the letters, I would say, are from, from in and around Liverpool, but they're also from the rest of the country, particularly from London and Manchester, funnily enough. Uh, there's letters from outside the UK, including from Ireland, and bits of the sort of former overseas British empire, I would say. And in terms of the sort of the style of the letters, I mean, they're, they're, they're just fascinating. They're all over the place, really. Like some people write their memories of favourite Shankly games. Younger fans in particular um, write often quite touching but poorly executed poems and songs. Um, older people, tend, it tends to be advice, quite a lot of advice to Bill Shankly about what you do in retirement. And of course, there's a lot of gratitude for Shankly's transformation of Liverpool in the previous 15 years. And I suppose the overriding feeling is, yes, just this, I guess this is what the essay tries to sort of get into and distill, that that, that sense of the emotions surrounding uh, his very sudden retirement. And a lot of that is captured in the letter. So it's quite quite a moving experience to read. And, and there, But there's some quite interesting features of the letters in the sense that they're quite diverse in their background in terms of age and class and also gender, as I mentioned in, in the article quite extensively. So that was kind of the jumping off point for me to try and organise the paper and think about different ways in which the letters might speak to interesting themes in sort of modern historiographical debates in in the field of sports history. Um, And that might also offer some different ways of looking at the Shankly story, which at least in the Liverpool speaking world is a a very well-known story. I think as I'll speak first as the football fan and then move back into the academic. It's very interesting because Shankly as a um, device has become quite powerful in the last like 10 years in particular. But, you know, when Liverpool wanted to furlough um, staff, this was going against the Shankly values and the socialism that Shankly wanted to put forward. So there's almost um, like the metaphor of Shankly is quite powerful today, whereas in the letters you got the sense of the kind of living, breathing importance of him and how embedded he was in the Liverpool community. So it's quite interesting to kind of almost get that reminder of the living person rather than the sort of metaphor he's become in Liverpool. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. And I, I think that's exactly right that, I mean, Shankly, as I mentioned right at the end of the, the essay, you know, the, the Liverpool Supporters Union that's founded when 
as the disastrous um, American takeover by um, Gillette and Hicks in the late noughties, um, you know, was founded and was called Spirit of Shankly precisely for those sort of folkloric socialist ideals that Shankly was seen to embody. Now we can unpack Bill Shankly's socialism in different ways. It wasn't particularly political. In, in many ways, it was very anti-political. It was more about that sort of collective, collective endeavor in activities in society, and particularly, of course, in football. But yeah, I think, I mean, and I touch on this in the essay, that one of the difficult things about writing about Shankly, and I say that as someone, you know, who's very much, you know, sort of bought into and being part of the, the, the Shankly mythology. You know, my, my grandfather's from L4, the district where you find Anfield. My dad's, you know, grew up in Liverpool. The whole family's either red or blue. So we're sort of steeped in this mythology ourselves. So to try and sort of step back from that with Shankly, I think is, is particularly difficult. So you're right, I think that the letters allow you to, to go back to Bill Shankly as he was in 1974, before the statue outside Anfield, before he becomes, yes, this metaphor for the quote unquote Liverpool way. And in a way, as I suggest, sort of almost a marketing device for the club and the city. And I don't necessarily mean that as cynically as, I, as it sounds, but it, you know, there is an element in which the myth replaces the man. And one of the ways in which the, it's interesting to look back on his career actually, is to remind ourselves that Shankly is this sort of, sort of magical aphoristic figure who, who, who's always dropping these fantastic quotations, um, who's just this oozes charisma. That, that's not a, that's a character, if you like, that takes time to develop and, and isn't there in 1959. And for many of the correspondents in 1974, I don't think that's the important element of Shankly. So yeah, going back to letters helps to sort of get back to the, the person and the, and the social and sporting situation of the mid seventies, rather than what we see today. You know. Yeah, and when he's suitably kind of situated, then you get to pull out some of those really interesting themes that you explore in the article. So to m move it more into, mm. again, what you've written, I'm kind of taking off my football hat, putting on my academic hat. There's not really yes, let's, a, get, a, let's get serious here, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's not really a great <laughs> distinction between the two. I just might no, throw in a, yeah. a word like discourse every now and then to kind of fill people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you've split it into looking at gender, looking at emotions, and looking at kind of global or transnationalism as mm -hmm. well so um on the first front the gender section i found just so fascinating because it did throw me for six because i saw emotions as a like, brilliant you know i i know what i'm gonna kind of delve into here this is fantastic but using the letters to actually re remind people of the kind of female supporters during that period because so much of what you look at so many of the biographies you read so much of the even clips that you look at it is so male-centered and male-focused and i thought it was fascinating to see the women's support of the game because it is something that I think even as historians we're at times culpable of just looking at the kind of masculine side of it so is that something you intentionally were looking at or the letters themselves as well as kind of pivoted you in that direction to look at female supporters of Liverpool during that time and actually like you know very strong diehard supporters yeah we will maybe touch on the mediums how they consumed football uh, in a moment well it's interesting I mean I think I mean, I mean, you know, to take it back briefly to the personal, to put a sort of personal hand on it, my, um, you know, my mother is a is a huge Liverpool fan, and um, she's not from Liverpool, but she obviously, after getting married to my dad, became kind of probably along with me the most passionate and swear heavy of the Liverpool supporters in our house, and um, so I think really, like my my as a, growing up, my understanding of the Liverpool support was probably conditioned by my mum as much as by anyone. And 
she and my dad, just as a little anecdote here, were actually were given a tour of Anfield sometime in the late 70s. So I actually have a letter from my mum that she drafted to write to Phil Neal, who was the captain, I think, at the time, or maybe it was to Phil Thompson. Anyway, to, to, to thank the Liverpool players for taking her around um, Anfield. And so that I think per, from a personal point of view, my mum's passion for the club was a sort of jumping off point, really. I mean, because I didn't really see gender in terms of growing up as a Liverpool supporter. Of course, it's it's everywhere in the, as you use that, let's let's be serious and academic, in the discourses around football, right? And and in so many unthinking ways that, of course, I, as a white middle-aged male, have no doubt partaken in, um, you know, inadvertently. So I think, you know, there, it's one of those things where the academic and the personal come together with the archival source, because the archival source, you know, when I started totting up the numbers, it was a striking number of letters from girls and women, many of whom you know, were indistinguishable from, indistinguishable from male support in terms of their level of support. And then there's also that sort of second element, if you like, of um, the more casual and armchair supporter that, that both, there are greater numbers of, I would argue, both from men and women by the 1970s through the television and so on. And as well, I think there were, Shankly was, despite the fact that he lived in this very male world, at least in his sporting world, somehow was a very empathetic figure to, to many women. There are a lot of women who write to him who probably are not directly interested in football, but have a lot of respect for Shankly, offer him advice on retirement and loneliness and, and what to do after football. You know, you should get out of Liverpool because it will be a goldfish bowl for you, you know, um, make sure you keep busy, et cetera, et cetera. Advice that I think, you know, is useful for anyone in retirement probably. So, yeah, the richness of the letters in terms of the female voices chimed, I think, with sort of my own personal experiences of growing up with a, a madly passionate Liverpool fan in my mum. And um, so, yeah, I, it's, it's nice to bring the two together, I think. And actually, just it is funny when you talk about that. My um, my grandmother introduced me to a world of sport and Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. So, <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so you know, when I first went to wrestling in Ireland and England, and I was just surrounded by all men, I just couldn't understand it because you know I'd watched Big Daddy and Haystacks in Wembley with my grandmother. Yeah, exactly. Um, where are all the grandmothers? That's exactly yeah. You know, where are the grandmothers chanting easy? Um, but actually, that's I, I, that, that's that's pretty. That's a great title for your next essay there. You know. Where are all the grandmothers? Yeah, where are all the grandmothers? <laughs> or my experiences with my my gran and I. Are, Big dad, big daddy, my grandmother and I. This is a great title in this. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah. my memoir. I think, you know, <laughs> that's your memoir. There you go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So my my grandmother, who's still uh, going strong, uh, Touchwood at ninety four. Um, she she would show me the kind of tapes on TV, and something that you talk about, and you've already kind of briefly touched on it, is how television allowed kind of your more fair weather fans uh, to show my Irishness, your Times prong cocktail mm. fans to you know mm. introduce. It, to kind of engage in and consume the sport, but also for women, it seems to play a very important role because the stadium would have been at times a very masculine space, but things like match of the day open, opened up that experience and allowed people to engage in a different way than in previous decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the most interesting letters from women supporters come from passionate Reds who have actually never been to Anfield, you know, and, the, you know, there's often, there's a debate in, you know, in, in contemporary Liverpool fandom, as there is in many clubs, about out-of-towners and, and authenticity and fandom, depending on whether you can come to the stadium or not, which, of course, these days is often very difficult for many fans, local or otherwise, to do because of the expense of it. But, yes, absolutely. I think 
that, that really struck me that there were people who became Liverpool fans because Liverpool became a national and, as I argue, eventually an international form phenomenon in the Shankly era. And so they were on television as much as probably, I guess, probably Arsenal, Manchester United, and indeed Leeds, probably, to give a plug to your team, uh, in the certainly 60s and early 70s. You know, those were the sort of teams who were the sort of would have been on the highlight shows the most and would have would have been seen in European action as well um, to some degree. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of interesting literature on sort of television's role in quote-unquote feminising spectatorship in the 1970s and, and perhaps in the 60s as well. And um, I drew a bit on a bit of that, I think. And, and, and the diversity of women's voices, I think, is interesting here. There are some people who are armchair fans um, who haven't been to Anfield, but there are equally... You know, those diehard fans like my mother or like your grandmother in wrestling or like a, the example I mentioned from one of my people I interviewed, Adrian Killen, a sort of a, a, Liverpool, a Liverpool LFC historian who, whose first memory, I think, real memory of football is the 1950 FA Cup final that Liverpool lost to Arsenal. And he was, he was very young and he went with his mum and his grandmother and sat on his grandmother's knee, I think. And his mum was in tears at the final whistle. And, you know, there's, I think there's all these stories through the generation that remind us that the invisibility of women in stories about football and indeed stories about football spectatorship, there's always been a construct, right? They're there throughout the period. It's just mostly historians and other academics and, and media and so on haven't really looked for them. And I think once you start to look, um, the narrative shifts quite substantially. I mean, as you rightly say, I think stadiums still remain predominantly male spaces in this period for a bunch of reasons. And of course, it's the period in which we get the rise of hooliganism in, in Britain and elsewhere. But the advent of television uh, and, and older forms of media as well, I think, um, print media, radio still is very important. That all allows multiple ways of approaching support for Liverpool. That, that, that is more inclusive. And I think that also ties in with Shankly's personality in the sense, as I said, he was kind of, if you like, very Catholic in his tastes. If you like football, you know, he would talk to you, you know. So there wasn't any, you know, in that sense, he didn't have any sort of, while he was by no means, you know, an advocate for gender equality, he didn't have any chauvinistic agendas. He didn't see football, at least in a political sense, as, as a man's game. He saw it as a game that, should be open to as many people as possible. And I think somehow that sort of democratic element of Shankly's love of football um, opens up his, his appeal and Liverpool's appeal under his leadership to a wider range of supporters, including many girls and women. I think it probably also explains in part the emotive responses that you, you talk, touch on in the books or in the article, pardon me. And that is something that I, I was just so um, happy to see when I, when I read the title is you delving into the history of emotions with this because it's always been a strange thing for me well not always but in the last five years it's been a very strange thing for me that there's almost we take it for granted as sport historians that emotions are important in sport but we haven't yet kind of critically analyzed um, what that means or what that looks like or how we can unpack that you know despite the kind of growing literature on the history of emotions in everything from like healthcare to gyms mm. Um, so was that a, a difficult thing to segue into or is that something that just seemed like a natural uh, response to the things that you were looking at? I mean, I think emotions are so strongly written across all of the letters that it, it would have almost been impossible to avoid the subject. I think the difficulty, as you rightly say, is that kind of the emotional turn in history as regards to sport 
particularly historical analyses of sport, I think is, is quite in its infancy. I mean, there's some good stuff on, on kind of the rise of emotion in broadly speaking, 21st century sport, I would say. Um, but I think getting hold of bodies of material that will allow you to analyze emotion as a historical phenomenon in sport, it, it, it's quite rare actually, or quite difficult because, you know, a lot of older coverage of sport, I think might be mediated through newspapers and so on. And a lot of the emotion can be filtered out of um, those reports. So to get this collection of letters written usually on the 12th or 13th of July, the 12th of July, 74 was the day that Shankly um, resigned. So they're literally written in the heat of emotion, you know, you know, there's, you can almost see the tear stains on the letters. I mean, there probably were one or two in places if they're not coffee or beer stains. Um, you know, you bet. And, and as I said in the essay, you know, what's striking to me is both the openness of the emotions to Shankly, but also particularly among male letter writers, that sort of self-consciousness about being emotional, which I think speaks very much to how many people and perhaps I don't think particularly men, but certainly many men feel about emotion in sport, that we, that we all can share those emotions and we feel them, but we also feel perhaps because we know in the end sport's not as important as we've made it out to be. We also feel that some of those emotions, we're a bit self-conscious about them. Mm. Um, so I think that comes up nicely in the letters. And then there's the whole issue of the particular quote-unquote sentimentality of Liverpool as a city, uh, which later on, as you know, I'm sure has a much darker edge at the time of the Hillsborough disaster. You know, the media coverage in Britain, well, for a long time after that, is the self-pity city and Liverpool is this sort of sentimental, mawkish place. Um, you know, and that, that feeds into a lot of the mythology around Hillsborough and Liverpool fans' alleged culpability uh, in the Hillsborough disaster, which, of course, has long since been disproven. But I think back in the mid-70s, there's a sort of different version of Scouse sentimentality that is worn a bit more lightly by some of the letter writers who kind of play up the sort of drama and exaggerate it in the way that we do in sport, you know, because everything seems more important in sport when it's happening. And then a week later or a month later, it's less important. So I think a body of sort of archival material that captures that moment and, and the emotion as it's happening, it's just, it's just really rich and it's, it's, it's a really fascinating way of, of, of kind of managing to, having a historical anchor to dive into that topic that I think is, as you rightly say, it's always there in sports history, but it's very difficult to untangle and to analyse, I think. Yeah, and I hadn't, I hadn't yet considered, you know, how difficult it is to get more unmediated content because i mean you know just thinking when i think about emotions in sport two things that always stick with me is a leeds fan who's maybe 10 years old crying topless uh, at the end of the season when they got relegated in 05 and then there was that famous arsenal man when i can't remember even who scored but sky sports kept replaying him screaming wildly <laughs> with eyes bulging out of his head and saying jesus how would you actually study that um, yeah. but the, the letters themselves are so like it's so interesting just to see how stream of consciousness some of them are you know the the men who are writing, you know, I'm not afraid to say like I've, I'm choking back tears. So like it's it's emotive, but it's also they're censoring, but they're also telling Shankly that they're censoring, which is just such an interesting thing. Yeah. You, don't, you can censor yourself but without even telling anyone anything. Um, so it's just a really interesting thing to read. Yeah. And I, I mean, what's really and what I really like about the letters is, is that immediacy, right? You can tell they're people who've sat down and just written the letters in the emotional heat of the moment, even as, as you suggest, they're sort of self-censoring a little bit. 
I also think, and again, you always have to be a bit dangerous about sort of waxing nostalgic about the old days in football because, you know, that's the kind of thing middle-aged historians like me might be prone to do. But I think it's really interesting now um, to think about the immediacy and directness of the contact to Shankly here. Like people wrote letters to Shankly and Shankly wrote back. And I know from my own experience of writing to sports institutions, in, you know, in the, in the present day, that, you know, I mean, I've tried to write to Jürgen Klopp. Jürgen, if you are listening, um, I haven't heard back yet. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's mediated through the club's huge PR and media machine. And I understand that. It's, it's a bigger institution and so on. So I think what's fascinating here is that the, the letters, that, you know, that I kind of say it suggests in a way that Shankly's kind of like this, however you want to put it, you know, father figure to a lot of Liverpool supporters. Someone they feel they can write to in very open ways and as you rightly say, in ways where they're kind of even sort of analysing and self-criticising their unseemly shows of emotion, so to speak. And I think that's all fascinating. And I think for all that, you know, that I think, I mean, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool support, I think, have extremely strong connections. And, and I think some comparisons between Klopp and Shankly are, are perfectly valid and interesting. And, and, and there's some mileage in it, I think. But... I, it's, it's interesting to go from that much more direct immediacy of, of the Shankly letters to the necessarily perhaps um, more distant relationship that, that the clubs and supporters have nowadays, you know, and that, that, you know, it's a fact, function of many things, of course. Well, it's interesting, just moving slightly into speculation, just looking at the, you do get maybe not as strong a connection, but you do see those similar sort of emotional communities with uh, Matt Busby, obviously, in Manchester, with Brian Clough first at Derby, then at Nottingham, with Don Revy at Leeds. You know, like, so it's interesting, because now when I think about emotional responses to great managers leaving, or, you know, quote-unquote, great managers leaving, it seems to be more anger than, you know, than anything else, <laughs> yeah. uh, because yes. there is that disconnect between everything, and uh, Twitter is the kind of letters mm. of today, but the disconnect, it's interesting how that's maybe feeding into the emotional responses people have. Yeah, there's there's a load of things there, aren't there? I mean, we're in a, I mean, the age of anger, right? Yeah. Mishra, I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, social media's transformed things. I think also just, I mean, and Klopp's a bit of an outlier. He's now been at Liverpool for, what, six, six and a half years. But generally speaking, a manager's shelf life is, is pretty short these days. Now, of course, that was true in the 70s for many managers too, but there is this sort of generation or two generations of managers Stan Carlos at Wolves, Matt Busby, of course, as you mentioned, Clough, uh, shorter tenures, but, but memorable tenures at Derby and Nottingham Forest, Shankly at Liverpool, Revy at Leeds, managers who stay at a club for a long time and become, you know, embedded in those communities over long periods. And also, I would say all those managers have fallow periods, you know, that, I mean, Shankly goes from 1966 to 1972, 73, without winning a single trophy. Now, it's very difficult to imagine that you could survive that way at a, at a so-called big club in you know the 21st century, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of differences, I think, in terms of that have that have meant the managers, like the players, of course, have become more distant figures from the fans. And again, I think there's always a danger of waxing nostalgic here. And of course, the the interesting thing here is in the 70s, and Bill Shankly sort of said this himself in many of his post-retirement interviews, you know, Shankly complained about managers and players who won nothing but had swimming 
swimming pools and tennis courts at their homes and how managers these days hadn't won anything and Shankly could do the job with his eyes shut. So he was harking back to the older generation, probably when he was playing in the 30s. Um, so I think all, all generations look back <laughs> critically uh, uh, to, a, uh, to golden days when they were players or managers or fans and um, judge the present very harshly. Um, but yeah, it's striking the difference between that connection between supporters and um, managers. And, and I think, you know, Liverpool, as I indicated in the essay, has always, since Shankly, I think, revered managers perhaps more than other clubs with the honor- well, dishonourable exception of Roy Hodgson. Um, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, there are elements of that still in what we see between the supporters and Klopp, but it's a very different world, right? And you get to see that in the whole Super League fiasco of a few months ago, that the managers left in very awkward positions and in way, or the furlough controversy that you mentioned as well. I mean, the managers are left in much more awkward positions with the big corporations that football clubs are now in ways that wasn't really the case probably when Shankly was about. Well, it's interesting, just Stephen, you touched on the longevity because in the letters themselves, you do get a sense of fans who have grown up with kind of Shankly as this kind of constant in their lives and then the, the emotive response and the rawness of it because you say most of the letters are written like within kind of a three-day max period of the announcement. So it is interesting to kind of speculate on how Shankly evolved, how Liverpool evolved, how the fans' relationship with him evolves and it becomes that kind of, you know, quote-unquote father figure uh, in, a, in a symbolic sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, a lot. Like some of the longer letters kind of are, are sort of historical narratives of Shankly's 15-year tenure as Liverpool manager. And, you know, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting, I mean, to, to draw us, you know, a parallel from another institution of Liverpool from the 1960s, you know, you often hear kind of in the kind of cultural history of the 60s or of Liverpool or of music in the 60s that, what made the Beatles mean so much to so many people was that the, the people of that generation who grew up with the Beatles kind of changed with the Beatles. It's very different with Shankly, whose musical taste we should emphasize didn't really stretch to the Beatles, particularly in their psychedelic phase. <laughs> um, he had much more traditional tastes. But I do think this sense of a sort of historical narrative where a, a group of supporters in this case grow and change with the manager underpins some of the letters. And, and actually, some of the letters even go back to, you know, supporting Liverpool in the dark days before Shankly became manager. Some of the letters, interestingly, are from manage, uh, from fans of some of the clubs who Shankly managed before he came to Liverpool, which were often quite, you know, smaller clubs like Carlisle, Accrington, Stanley. So you get letters from, if you like, supporters of Shankly as a manager rather than Shankly as a Liverpool manager. So, yeah, these I think these narratives and, and memories of, the era, the Shankly era, that 15-year period, um, they're written very strongly across the letters and then they speak to that longevity, yes. So I just want you to know it took every fibre of my being not to shout who are they when you said Accrington Stanley. <laughs> I know, um, well, yeah, you know, in my, subconsciously in my head I was saying it myself. Yeah, enough, I was, you, know, I was, you can't do it, you can't not do it, can you? You know, the, the club is, is tarred, tarred by forever, the brush forevermore. Forever tired, Um for anyone who's not, for anyone who's not listening, just just go and find, just put Milk Advert 1980s Ian Rush, Accrington Stanley, in, and you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah, and it will be for, <laughs> for forever burrowed in your brain to annoy Accrington Abs- Stanley fans. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. the small cohort. That was a cheap shot. Um, so you mentioned um, 
the Beatles and kind of growing up with the Beatles. And this is obviously a very clunky segue into the transnationalism uh, element that you talked about as well. So looking at the letters, and this is perhaps my favorite uh, section heading that I've ever read. To Malaysians, it is like having rice without curry. The letters of the transnational history. <laughs> uh, k- kudos to you. I'm wondering, yeah. could you maybe talk a little bit about how you were able to look at the transnational appeal and support of Liverpool uh, during this time and what it encompassed, because it was really fascinating. I think there are different trends of, uh, or different generations or different migrant groups that kind of emerge from, from this section as well. Yeah, this is interesting. And, and I think of the three sections, this was the one where I felt, and, and some of the reviewers' comments were interesting here and kind of just allowing me to sort of moderate my argument a bit here, because I think what we see with Shankly and Liverpool in this period is, as I argue, the beginning of Liverpool as a sort of a transnational institution. And it really probably takes off from Liverpool's first European Cup in 1977 through probably to the Miracle of Istanbul in 2005. I mean, there's a, there's a whole history of Liverpool as a truly global institution that is post-Shankly. But I think what's interesting to me here is looking at the origins of Liverpool as this sort of transnational phenomenon. And as I mentioned in the essay, and it, you know, it pains me to do it, to put my football fan hat on, the, you know, Manchester United were, you know, for much of the Shankly era, I would say, based on the legend and of course achievements of Busby's teams ahead of Liverpool in terms of that the international buzz around the team partly because of course it had this tragic backstory the Munich disaster in 1958 partly because it had the fifth Beatle to bring it back the Beatles in George Best so I think Liverpool was always a kind of more you know more prosaic in terms of its international appeal under Shankly and, and as I hinted in the start of my essay you know I, I don't think Liverpool and Shankly and the style of football was as widely loved in in the UK as as certainly Busby's teams were. But I think what you start to see in the 60s and 70s uh, as Liverpool become successful and compete in Europe, you know, every season from whatever, 1964 until they're banned after the Heisel disaster is kind of brand recognition that goes beyond the borders of the UK and Ireland. And much of that, I would say, um, or at least... A large proportion of that is diasporic. You know, it's it's a Scouse diaspora that has helped to spread word of Liverpool to, to Canada, to the US, to Australia and New Zealand. But there were also glimpses, and, and the letter you quoted there from the Malaysian book owner is one brilliant example. There are glimpses that there are people taking the club up in their own right and, and beginning the kind of journey that you see many Liverpool fans on today. You know, I, I meet lots of them here in Canada who've probably only been to Liverpool once, maybe have never had the fortune of going to Anfield. But, you know, uh, like a good friend of mine, you know, they have the live bird tattooed on the back of their arms, right? And, and they will be as passionate Liverpool supporters queuing up at five in the morning to watch games in LA or in Toronto or anywhere else. Um, and I think the beginnings, I think my point here is the beginnings of this sort of transnational interest in the club go back to the Shankly era, which is ironic because Bill Shankly famously was a reluctant sh- traveler. You know, he said, there's a great quote from him in his retirement, you know, travel's a waste of time. Life's short enough anyway. Why do you need to go anywhere? You know, family holidays to sort of um, Scotland or maybe the Irish coast or to the, you know, the Northwest somewhere. Um, you know, he didn't really like overseas travel. So that's an interesting element of the story that, you know, this, this kind of very, in some respects, very insular man uh, outside of football becomes this vehicle for um, the beginnings, I would say, uh, of a sort of a transnational love for Liverpool that's, that's obviously grown since then with the club's continued success. Yeah, and I think you do a great job 
kind of marrying the as a, you have the Scouse diaspora, you have the kind of Catholic support in Ireland, yeah. but you do have that new stream, which is you know European football increased broadcasting is actually bringing in more and more people. So I thought the marrying of those two was was actually quite clever because you know it'd be so easy to overlook one in favour of the other. Um, yeah, I, and I was I was really trying to get hold of to not just make it a story of diaspora. Now that's obviously a huge part of it, I think. But I think I mean I know from you know speaking to you know Liverpool sports, particularly from Scandinavia, that the '60s in particular is, is is you know when that love affair with Liverpool begins, and it's partly in the case of Iceland, as I mentioned in the essay, that Liverpool's first European Cup game is against a team from Reykjavik, and um, this kind of sort of cements the beginning of a romantic attachment to Liverpool among many later Liverpool supports in Iceland. Uh, and then in, I think elsewhere in Scandinavia, it's later in the 60s when, when English football games are televised in Scandinavia. Um, in Norway, it's the Tippen is the programme, I believe, uh, from the late 60s, I think it's 1968 or 69 onwards. So, you know, whereas in England, you don't get live football league games until I believe 1983. In Scandinavia, from the late 60s onwards, there's one English game on, as far as I understand it, every weekend. And so there's a whole generation of Scandinavian fans who grow up with a second English team. And of course, many of them, this is Liverpool's peak period of dominance, the 70s, you know, end up choosing Liverpool. So I, I wanted to try and grasp the beginnings of that international appeal of Liverpool. And the great paradox of Shankly, this very insular figure, as in many ways, a very, I would say, a very international figure in football. You know, football meant that Shankly, you know, there weren't any barriers for him in football in that sense, you know, that, you know, like they had that great story of him marching up the train after Hungary had played Scotland in 1954, just to go into Frank Pushkas's carriage and chat to him. And um, a student of mine was telling me a great story the other day about how when Panathinaikos came to train in England ahead of the 71 European Cup final, they came to train and they were refused training at uh, Goodison Park, Everton's ground, because Everton had been knocked out by Panathinaikos previously. And Bill Shankly apparently rang Frank Pushkas and said, Pushkas was then the manager of Panathinaikos and said, come and train at Anfield. So there's all these, these interesting transnational connections with other coaches that is, is one element of the story. And again, it comes back to what I was saying about Shankly's appeal generally and why he's such a reified figure and why it's difficult not to reify him in a way is that he just kind of opened up dialogues in football that, that without meaning to really broke down barriers of class and gender and nationality. And so you get to the point where you get this very sweet letter from a Malaysian book, from a Malaysian bookstore owner, making this rather awkward analogy of Liverpool without Shankly being like, um, yes, curry without rice or fish without chips. And then, and then he puts in parentheses or something like that. I think it's pretty good. I think it's a pretty good line though. So he doesn't need to apologize for himself. No, it, it works. So you actually, you, you kind of half answered my second last question, which is um, something that I think a lot of sport historians struggle with is when you move into kind of your, your favorite area or looking at some of your favorite people, the difficulty between navigating the examination with the kind of hagiography, hey, hey especially of someone like Bill Shankly, was that something that you struggled with, especially when you're reading letters that are saying how wonderful a person he is it's like double jeopardy right you know it's not only do you have an interest in it but there's also what you're dealing with is so praiseworthy was that something that it was difficult to kind of parcel out or were you able to keep the objective hat on uh, for want of a better phrase 
No, it was difficult. In a word, yes, yeah. <laughs> it was difficult. Um, and in fact, I remember trialing a, an early draft of the paper to my colleagues in a sort of research group in my department at Guelph. And everyone in Canada is very polite. And I think people like the paper, but a couple of them very diplomatically pointed out that it was quite yes, fanboyish, shall we say, or had elements of hagiography in it. And I think, um, I mean, this is, a, I think, a very difficult element. It's interesting thinking about some other people who've written about Shankly, and I talked a bit about David Peace's novel Red or Dead from 2013, which is this very ambitious um, reimagining of the inner workings of Shankly, which some critics hated and some, including me, loved. And and Peace had said much the same thing. He'd gone into the you know the project thinking that Shankly was a good man, and and it comes out of it thinking he's as close to a saint as can be. So. I think the odds are stacked against us all here. As you say, it's double jeopardy as well when you start reading the letters and you're like, oh God, they all think he's great as well. I mean, nobody's saying anything bad here. Um, so I think it took me time in sort of honing the essay to, to, to take off, or at least partly take off the football hat mm. and put on a bit more of an objective one. But at the same time, I didn't really want to go down the whole sort of no, no offense to some of the previous essays I've written, but somewhat bloodless academic discourse about Shankly, because I think the beauty of the letters is the emotion in it. And I think to, to kind of leave myself out of that entirely would have been difficult. And, and I think kind of dishonest in a way. So hopefully, like a good historian, you know, you find a balancing act and um, there's some hagiography, but you're kind of examining the, his, the hagiography a little bit critically. Um, yeah, but it was difficult. I think that's, and, and I think like anything, when you write about something close to your heart, that, 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 that's often the most difficult thing to write about because you care about it. And, um, you know, there's two Liverpool topics that I've had things published on recently that have meant a lot to me just because um, they mean a lot to me as an individual. That's the Hillsborough disaster and Bill Shankly. And so, you know, writing about them requires some sort of detachment that's difficult to get on both of those mm. topics, I think. Um, so hopefully I managed it in the end, but um, yeah, it took, a, took quite a few took quite a few tries and some helpful advice from colleagues and reviewers. Well, as someone who clearly enjoyed the paper, um, I think you struck the right balance. One of my professors has always struck stuck with me um, in like first or second year. He said the dirty secret of all good history is that it's readable, um, and no one ever wants to admit it. So you, you've achieved the dirty little secret. Uh, well, in well all thank history. you. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, just I mean, this is a wider question, but. It, I mean, sports is, sport is so full of brilliant narratives, right? And characters and stories. And, and there's so much untapped material out there like this. I mean, not everyone gets hold of the two bags of letters as you, not to remind you painfully of that again, but there is such a rich and untapped field of sports history for all of these stories that I think, I think that is very important. And sometimes, you know, like anyone in the field, I, I, I feel a little constricted by some of those demands of our academic discourse right that, that that it sometimes can take away a bit of the pure joy of um of, of being someone who loves sport and i think most sports historians and sports academics are exactly that and you were talking about your own experiences with your grand wrestling going to watch wrestling you know like it all comes i think in sports history from um a, a deep love of sport that i think sometimes we need to let rip a bit more in the things we write and um and, and yes, try and make it as readable as possible. Because another big thing I think is, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of think of the ways in which academics can kind of bridge. I'm always thinking about this, you know, how academics can bridge that gap between what we write. So it's not just kind of, we're just talking among ourselves mm. and, and, and bringing it to a wider audience um, 
and it kind of making connections. So you've got, you know, that, that, that you know, like the sort of the Eldorado of um, really good academic research, but something that's readable and something that reaches a wide audience. Very difficult to do, but I do think sports history has so much potential in mm. to, to kind of really be successful in doing that. So hopefully it's a small contribution to that. Yeah, well, I think, um, and I will give my final question, but something my advisor, I remember once and kind of sitting me down and for 10 minutes asked me why uh, my specialty is bodybuilding and fitness so he spent about 10 minutes asking me like why did why was it important and eventually we drilled down to because people enjoyed it uh you mm-hmm. know and that's something that i think is, then is the opening of the door where you can bridge that kind of academia general public and sport and physical activity in my own sense seems to bridge that gap a lot easier than than other fields in history yeah and it's, it's interesting and you're absolutely right it's about enjoyment i think the difficult thing for us as, as historians of sport sometimes is that that enjoyment doesn't always leave traces, right? And so, mm. or, or just like the sadness doesn't always leave traces, right? Like it, the next game happens, the next event happens, and 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 it's not necessarily analysed, and, and not everyone's coming home from football matches, for example, and writing diary entries about how they're feeling. So I felt lucky to, to in this case, get hold of the letters that could kind of capture a historical moment where people are almost analysing their feelings about sport which I think a lot of us don't really do. We just move on from event to event. One week you're furious with your team. The next minute you're, you know, you're quite happy. You know, you're crying, you're laughing. But we're not necessarily analysing or thinking about it. So I think, and it's, of course, when you try and capture enjoyment in sport, it, it's always, um, you know, in capturing it, you kind of lose a bit of it as well, I suppose. Mm. So that, that's tricky too. But yeah, it is about enjoyment. And um, that's why I think, I'm sure it's the same for you as, as for me. I mean, that's why you end up doing sports history because... This is what you love in life and um, what better way to do it, to have the privilege of doing it than to think about it all the time. You know, I do that anyway. So <laughs> may as well do it for a living. Oh, you have an outlet. Um, so at, <laughs> at the beginning, um, you mentioned that this is part of a wider um, book project. So uh, without kind of putting you on the spot, what, what's next or, you know, where does it fit into the broader work that you're doing uh, on Liverpool? Well, it, I th- I've always thought of the, the letters as, as being something self-contained in the sense of they work so well for um, an, an essay or a sort of a scholarly article on Shankly. But the wider project is a sort of an international social and cultural history of Liverpool from, I guess, from Shankly to Klopp. And, you know, this is a project's been ongoing. I kind of interrupted it for another book. And, um, of course, COVID's done some interruptions in terms of travel and research, which we're all grappling with. Um, but you know, life is long and I'm okay with that. And, um, so it's an international cultural and social history of the club really. And it's focused mostly on supporters. I want it to have an international angle. I want it to try and do things that football club histories don't always do. I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that and to organize it, whether it's to do that thematically or whether it's to do it, um, you know, kind of chronologically, Answers on a postcard from your listeners would be appreciated, I'd have to say, because I'm grappling with that. Um, so, yeah, I, and that, that involves lots of interviews with Liverpool sports from around the world, some lots of newspaper work. Hopefully finding a few more plastic bags of letters would be helpful. Again, if anyone has them, please get in touch. Um, maybe the club will get back to me about their archive, their mysterious archive. So there's work, it's work in progress, but, um, yeah, that's the long-term goal is to, is to, to kind of write a history of... Um, the club that I love I suppose and to do it in a way that is academic but hopefully people will read well, which is that, not easy as we know yeah. 
knowing your luck, you'll probably just trip and fall into several boxes worth of uh, of letters from supporters. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe there'll be some outside my my office door after we've had this. Someone's already dropped them off. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So. Alan, thank you so much for this. Um, I will make sure that there's a link to the article and then also I'll get you to send me on a bio um, of all the different bits and pieces. So I'll end once more just by reminding people uh, the name of the article, uh, which I have on my computer that has now frozen. Uh, this heart-rending and world-shattering news, gender, emotion and transnationalism in the Bill Shankly retirement letters, which has just been published hot off the virtual presses uh, in sport and history. So Alan, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And I suspect I'll be picking your brain about the book whenever it does come out. My pleasure, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much.